With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Senior. We're presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Matthew Penny is in the building. Penny, I don't know your middle name. I realized that like midway through that intro that I was just like fucked. I, was, I didn't have anywhere to go other than just say Matthew Penny. You could have thrown any name in there and people really wouldn't know the difference. It's yeah. Steven for my dad and then for my uh, confirmation name, we get to pick another one, which is a great part of the process, is Xavier. I don't know why, so I, I guess you can add that extra X if you need to. Oh, we got the we got the Boston Catholic up in here. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> time and place. Yeah, time and place. Speaking of Boston Catholic, we're going to talk today about the Celtics turnover <laughs> in their front office slash coaching arena. We'll go with Boston uh, being Matt Penny's stomping grounds uh, and Penny being an enormous Celtics fan. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have some thoughts on that, I'm sure. Then we're going to talk a little bit about Coach K deciding to do the victory lap season. And then finally, we're going to talk a little bit about the early entry list, which has been finalized uh, for the 2021 NBA draft. Uh, then we'll talk a little bit about Mare of Easttown in the finale at the end, which, uh, spoiler alert, ruled. was great. Uh, not really a spoiler alert, but was just fantastic. Uh, Penny, how are things going on your end? How are, are you excited? Are things going well? I'm always excited. I'm always happy to be back here. It seems like a, a crazy... Uh, collision course of my like favorite things from 2002 with with coach k announcing he's hanging up the celtics going another direction and kind of moving around some pieces on on that boat and then some nba draft talk too so it's a perfect mismatch of of things that i'd like to dive into with you i'm here along for the ride so the celtics turnover let's start there in (laughs) the middle of the night for me and the morning for you i would imagine we got news that danny ainge was considering stepping down i I don't know about you but i had gotten some like rumblings that you know with danny might not be like long for this it'll be his choice like in the next couple years like it might be a thing like had you had you kind of heard that where he might not might not be like a long long long-term guy with the Boston Celtics going forward. I had for the last couple months or so, but with kind of those stories, you don't know what the truth is behind it and and how much people kind of just spun off some of the health issues he had the season or two before. But there there was some substance to it that, hey, when the season ends, he may step back, may look to do something else, may just step away from the team to have some type of clean break because – Clearly, the Celtics need a shakeup, whether it's in the front office, on the roster, maybe both, and and that was a, a few a huge first step. And I was actually surprised with you being in Australia and texting you middle of the day and you responding. I, I thought to myself, his phone must be blowing up because I think it's like three in the morning <laughs> there right now. I uh, so I'll be honest, like the the Danny one, I was awake for because it was still like ten p.m. at night, and that. You know, like I said, like was not totally unexpected. The one that like blew my mind was Brad Stevens getting the president of basketball operations job. Uh, 
that one happened at like 3 a.m. and I just happened to like wake up in the middle of the night. Um, that one was staggering to me. Did that did that take you by surprise in the way that it took <laughs> did, me did by you have surprise? did you have did you have the moment like uh, on the plane at home alone when Kevin's mom realizes they forget him and just Kevin was that like did snap you awake out of your sleep like you knew somehow in your life there was an <laughs> NBA thing you had to chase I, I was very surprised I, I didn't see that coming at all if you had told me at the end of the year that Brad Stevens was let go or he decided that he wanted to take a year off from coaching I, I would have said I could see that I didn't see the plan being him kind of stepping away and moving into the front office i was very surprised by that yeah i did not see that you know i've you know kind of heard and you know maybe this has to do with the whole indiana thing that happened mid-season right that you know brad didn't want to have to recruit right because you have to be out on the road constantly recruiting well you have to be out on the road a lot as an nba coach not necessarily not necessarily as much as when you recruit but i think that if Stevens really does want to be around his family a lot more, like you can make that work as a general manager, right? Like you do have to travel a, lot, a little bit. It's just easier. It, it's easier. Yeah, it's definitely easier. And and I want to kind of retract a little bit. I was shocked on the move from him going to the front office, not with him leaving the, the bench per se, because he left some breadcrumbs throughout the season. There was a, after one loss, he said something along the lines of being out of sync as a coach. And I was like, that is so on Brad Stevens, like to even say that. And right. you saw the, the defense kind of took a nosedive, had frustration with the lack of depth of the bench. You had longtime commentator Mike Gorman call out Tatum and Brown for all-star caliber seasons, but kind of selfish play. And it, it was just, it felt, uh, it didn't feel like a normal Celtics year. And the, when he turned down Indiana, I thought, okay, maybe he's sticking around a little bit longer, has that press conference where he refers to himself as a mass hole that drinks Dunkin' Donuts and drives too fast. It's like, okay, he's one of us. He's, he's going to be around. But <laughs> he's one of when us. He, yeah, one of us. Ultimately, he was burnt out. The team was burnt out. Everyone saw it. It needed to be some type of, of change. And when you're with an organization for, I think, seven seasons, eight years, whatever it was, and especially in Boston, you age it in, like, dog years. He got the job at 37 years old. And even after making the Eastern Conference Finals for three of the last five years, and including one of the loss to the eventual champion, Cleveland Cavaliers, we at, at, in Boston, we are a spoiled sports town. It's championships or bust that has to wear on you despite making the Eastern Conference Finals, despite Danny Ainge bringing a, a title to Boston, that it's still never quite enough. So I, I got it from a, from a rest, a reset, recharge type of view. Yeah, so I guess that my next question is, I was talking to a friend about this. I don't know that I want to say who necessarily, but I was talking to a friend about this yesterday. And he was trying to figure out when he thought this decision was made. That like Brad would follow Danny Ainge as the president of basketball operations. Do we think it was made around the time that brad was trying to decide on or not deciding it seems like it was never really a decision for brad but like um was it made around the time that indiana's coaching vacancy occurred uh not necessarily that danny would leave at the end of this season you know maybe it was next season and then brad would take over then what do we think about that because i'm still trying to figure out the timing here because you don't like Danny Ainge does not make this decision, and then our co- or my colleague at the Athletic, Sean Sharania, 
reports within hours that Brad Stevens is taking over. Like that, I feel like that doesn't happen over the course of a couple hours. You know, what it I wasn't mean? even that long. I think it was less than a couple hours because I, I saw the Ainge thing in the morning, and I think it was like an hour later. Could be wrong. But I, I'm just curious if you're getting like a little bit conspiracy theory here ish with well, I don't even think it's conspiracy. Did we, did we do the dance? And then he says, "Okay, we'll offer you a position in the front office, even if you don't like the coach, because we love you. We believe in in what you've done here. We want to reward you, so you know that you may be turning down your one time dream job to coach the Indiana Hoosiers, but being a story franchise and being in the area, and you clearly like it here. Here's what we can offer you if you say no." I don't even know that it's conspiracy theory e. I don't. I mean, like, if you're Brad Stevens, you have to have some sort of assurance that you're the guy long term at Boston in order to turn down what was assuredly at least like a $50 million offer from Indiana, right? Like, you yes, have to have I think, some. I think it was like seven years, 70 million, or, or something along those lines was reported. It, it was absurd for a college coach, upper tier college coach. Right. So. You have to have some sort of assurance when you turn down that kind of money long term. And look, like Brad Stevens is going to have other offers. He's going to have other NBA offers, right? Like it's not like he's turning down 70 million and then could be left with 5 million down the road. Like he's Brad Stevens could walk to another NBA job, right? Because that's just his reputation in the league. But if you're going to turn down that much and you go in a press conference and say you're a masshole and you you have Dunkin' Donuts and you (laughs) love the city and you've spent more time here, I just wonder if there's some sort of like assurances that were made to him. You know what I mean? I, I totally get what you mean because it had to happen. It, it wasn't something that happened that one hour that Celtics ownership group said, okay, we got to scramble. It's like Brad's still here. Is there something we can do to like get him to stay? Does he want to be president? Okay, we'll, we'll make him the president. We'll bump it up. There had to be some conversations and dialogue that led up to that. I, I would like to know, and I'm sure in like a year or two, somebody will do some deep dive report yeah. on like the actual day it happened, but I'd like to see it and then kind of see how he coached and the game's results afterwards. Because even like <laughs> this last series before going to the Nets, he was very complimentary of the, the Brooklyn Nets and said, we have to play really up to beyond the level of play that we're used to to win because they're very good. And uh, again, complimentary coaches stuff, but it, it seemed just a little bit out of character for him, the way he kind of react to uh, an opening series. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that for the most part, um, it is interesting that that was kind of the way it worked out. But, I, I, you know, like Scott Brooks was in another series where Washington had very little chance of winning. And, you know, he said similar things. Right. So I don't know. I mean, how do we think Brad Stevens is going to do with this job it is kind of the next question here. I'm actually, I can't wait to see what his first move is to see who's traded, who's drafted and, and see kind of what fingerprints he puts on it. I'm not going to dismiss him, write him off, because he's an unbelievably talented basketball mind, and I'm sure that some of that stuff is an easy transition to the front office, but it's it's different challenges you face. And then who kind of is still around him, too? Is is Austin Angel there? Is Mike Zarin still there? Really good front office guys who've been the Celtics for a long time, but we're kind of tied naturally to that Danny Ainge front office tree. So what do the people look like around him too? And and you nailed it. it he's a coach, right? Like he's going to get the itch to coach again. I'm curious how long that takes before he looks around and says, "I need a I need a whiteboard. Like I want to drop an underneath out of bounds play. I want to drop an ATO. Like I can't I can't deal with free agency and the luxury cap anymore." 
So I think that one thing that has been told to me about Stevens over the course of just like his career is that he's one of within basketball. He's one of the more humble people in that he knows what he doesn't know and like listens to other people. Right. It's not just the Brad Stevens show. If he thinks you have a better idea or a better sense of things, he will listen to that. And I think that a lot of people imagine the president of basketball operations or general managers or leads of basketball departments in the NBA as being these dictatorial positions where nobody else has a say. Right. And nobody else really um, matters in the front office. And look, at the end of the day, Brad Stevens is going to have to give the go ahead on whatever happens here. Right. Any move that gets made, Brad Stevens has to go. Okay, sure. Because that's the job, right? When you're at the top of the food chain, you have to give the clearance. Having said that, like, there are a lot of really smart people in that front office. Like you said, Mike Zarin, like, he's very good within trade negotiations, right? Like, someone like Austin Ainge, who runs their player personnel department, is very good. Dave Lewin is very good kind of at a lot of different things like cap stuff and player evaluation. If what we know about Brad Stevens continues to be true, that he knows what he doesn't know and is willing to listen to the opinions of others and then gather information and make a decision based off of that, I think he could be very good at this. He knows basketball to a level that very few people on planet Earth do. And we'll be able to provide insight and give a final go ahead or non-clearance on final decisions that will i think be really like I, th- I think he has a chance to be very good at this i guess is kind of my point i think he has a chance to be very very good at this role i just also wonder if there is a bit of a how, how quickly can he get up to speed to the cap stuff is he just up to speed in relative terms on the cap stuff like is he someone like me where Like I can dive deep into the mechanics as to whether or not Julius Randall is eligible for an extension or (laughs) like, can the team like decline his non guarantee and then resign like things like that. Um, where like, I know the Julius Randall number is like four one Oh six for his extension, or he could do a one plus one at like two fifty four. You know what I mean? Pause to stop you there. Like I I've been with you, not not, not in person. We never met, but, uh, I I've been talking to you, texting you when you had agents actually ask if they can extend certain contracts. So I can at least vouch for your knowledge of the cap space. And I'm hoping that Brad Stevens has some some innate version of it too. But like, I'll say this, like, I'm nowhere near an expert enough to like run the cap for an NBA team, right? Like I'm not even close. Like I have to ask people oftentimes like, Hey, like, like with the Randall thing, particularly, like I was asking around, like I asked John Hollinger, asked a couple people who work with teams, right? Like, Hey, like what are the mechanics here? Like how, how many different ways could the Knicks handle this? And really there's only one way. Right. Um, so is is he more on my level? Is he below my level? Is he above my level already just from being around really smart people in that Boston front office? I, I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think anyone uh, except maybe Boston knows the answer to that yet. So it'll be interesting to see that. Like, what is Brad's assessment of other players around the league? How does Brad assess the translation from uh, kids in college going to the NBA and NBA draft terms? Like, we just don't know answers to that yet. And I think that it's okay to be skeptical. 
about Brad Stevens. Uh, I think that if that front office stays in place with, you know, particularly the three at the top, I've heard good things about Remy Caulfield as well, um, who runs their main G League program. Uh, I think that there is a really strong foundation for him to be successful and to hit the ground running early for Boston. And, and he does listen. I mean, he was head coach of Butler at 30 years old. He was head coach of the Celtics at 37. And there's stories of when he got the job and even in the preseason, it's not like an open door policy for practice, but he'll invite area prep school coaches and, and coaches who are different, like outside the region to come in, watch, observe, and then like talk to those guys and girls afterwards and see your take and what you see and maybe look at things differently. He doesn't really big boy anybody when it comes to that stuff. He, he's in the gym with his kids and will go over and talk to guys playing three on three games he's open to hearing other opinions and it goes in line with what you're saying is it's not this dictatorship of a front office and it, it could be we could look like idiots in a few months and it's, this is another brad stevens move but i'm of the belief system that he's going to put the right people around him whether it's the people who are there maybe adds a few or whatever it may be that he'll be able to figure out because he, he's just too smart to to just throw stuff to the wind and say we're going to do it this way now now the the roster does need some movement i mean they definitely need a bench scorer they definitely need some veterans i'd say or for maybe from the wing position maybe just come off the bench to add another spark because that's one thing was lacking and you have to kind of see what happens down free agency too some bigs some contracts expiring and now you have the nba draft and you wonder if he's going to have as much time as the last draft, and, and we've talked about it before, how there were some teams that didn't play in the bubble and they had all this time for the NBA draft. You could watch all this film, and maybe that's the, the new Boston secret weapon of, okay, Brad, just, just deal with kind of the, the draft and watch hours and hours of college tape, which you can't do as a head coach, and maybe his basketball mind's able to pick something out that other people previously haven't seen. Yeah, and I think that getting a different voice in there is good. Danny Ainge has been incredibly successful for a long time, but we'll see, right? We'll see if this if this helps Boston. And I think that like some of the, you know, the demise of the Boston Celtics over the course of this season has been greatly exaggerated. Boston, and I'm writing about this for over the weekend with Jared Weiss, or maybe on Monday. I don't know when it's going to go live. Um, Boston still has the only team that has two under 24 or 24 or under all-stars in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And they play the premier position that NBA teams are looking for 24 and under all-stars. Like I can't really fathom why people are worried about where Boston is going. Personally, I understand that like they need to round out the roster with better players, but the hard part for them is done. They have a potential MVP candidate in Jason Tatum, and they have another all-star in Jalen Brown who are going to continue to grow and blossom. And they're still not at their peak yet. Theoretically, at least um, I- I'm Boston. The hard part's done in Boston. They just have to answer the smaller decisions now. You know what I mean? Which some of will have to come through the draft because they've proven that they haven't been. And I know they signed Gordon Hayward. I know they signed Al Horford. But it hasn't been this free agent destination type of place. They did the dance with Kevin Durant. They did the dance with Anthony Davis. Uh, I think they've kind of put aside the thought that they're going to land one of these big fish. And they have to be smarter about how they deal with trades. They have to be smarter how they deal with the draft. And and that's kind of how you really build up the rest of the roster from the bottom up. Yeah, and. Totally agree with that. I, I don't know that we need to like dive incredibly deep into the Boston Celtics. I think we, 
you know done 20 minutes on them already let's take a quick commercial break before we go to coach k and his decision to do the victory lap Okay, and we're back. Let's talk a little bit about Coach K. So how um, how much did this take you by surprise that Coach K is stepping down and doing a victory lap? I don't want to say zero, but it, it did not catch me by surprise. The timing a little bit because yeah. similar to the Danny Ainge rumblings toward the end of the year, it was like, yeah, this might be the last one for Coach K. Didn't think I mean, he'd I, want to go. I think we, we like talked about it in the group text for a while. Like, yeah, that's actually was, true. Like it was we, over we a month time, ago. We, we, yeah, we need the timestamps. But I, I didn't yeah. think that it would kind of be now. I thought maybe that it would be at the end of the season. And, and somebody had a, a tweet, and I'm sure it's from the press conference or or something. I'm, I'm not trying to plagiarize here that he felt bad saying to recruits what he didn't think was actually going to happen and current players how long he's going to coach them. So that was part of it. Doing the actual victory lap, I, I I personally applaud it because I did five years of college, so I did a personal victory lap. I get it. Like, he doesn't want to leave. Who <laughs> wants to, you know, be high-fived, going to, I mean, not not for him, but going to bars and going to gyms. So I get it. It, it was more, it, it's all just been surreal the last, like, 24 to 40 hours in the basketball world. And then today he has the press conference and he comes out to Cascada every time we touch which was like a dance song, and I, I get it. That's what Duke comes out to, but it's just weird, and they're clapping, and I thought it was going to be like a motivational seminar. It, it's just been all so, so weird, so strange. The uh, the the EDM press conference uh, decision was a choice. Was <laughs> it, was, a choice. it was a choice. I thought he was going to like lower down the, the side mic microphone and start talking about, I don't know, sales and finding your inner true self. It was just kind of kind of nuts. <laughs> oh my god can you imagine if like he would have came down from the rafters like sting like to get to his <laughs> press conference uh and he had the camera crazy just chant let's go duke let's go duke Drops come down. on duke yeah. let's come go on, duke. duke play defense duke it was just as as crazy and i i was actually at work and I, i'm scrolling through twitter and I, I see Oh, we always have videos pop up on a timeline. I'm like, I'm not watching that. It's too long. It's too long. And there's like four of them in a row. I'm like, okay, like, what is this? And you see him come and like five people are standing up in the crowd, like clapping over their head. It was, it was a decision as well. So yeah, let's, uh, let's dive a little bit into the legacy of coach K. I mean, to me, look, I understand the John Wooden thing, but it's, the level of parity within college basketball is just so much greater at this point to where it's just really hard for me to get past him as being the greatest coach of college basketball history. I mean, he has won five titles. He has won them uh, over the course of three separate decades. He has gone to 12 Final Fours. I mean, I, I get that john wooden kind of dwarfs those numbers in some respect but it the level to which it is more difficult now to be a college basketball coach i think is drastic and he's you know deserving of his flowers in in that regard i i don't think we're gonna see anything like coach k ever again within college basketball just in terms of guy who stays at one spot for Mm, yes God knows how many years, 40 years it feels like, um, 40 plus years, I think, 
wins five national titles, goes to 12 Final Fours, and like has the level of success that he does. I don't think so either. I mean, I, I kind of racked my brain to think about that too, about what sitting head coach could even compare to that legacy if they stayed there for the next 25, 30 years because a, a lot of guys will either find a better job, they'll go for the NBA, they leave to, to stay ahead when they have a, a bad season or two. And the John Wooden one, again, all his national titles, you, you're never going to – take that away by any means but i also feel like it was it's some of those early celtics titles where it's like ah we won 11 of 13 it's like yeah but there are 12 teams the nba like you you had a pretty good percentage chance to win like even ucla like i don't think there was 365 teams that or 350 ish teams in the ncaa at the time like duke's been able to do and with 12 final fours uh, over 1100 wins they get close to 1200 this season the way he's done it too and I had a hard time a little bit reading today about the stories of him leaving and how much the game has just changed and with name image likeness and transfers and but he he changed the way that he even recruited and their staff recruited in the one and done era. He was uh, against it and changed what he's done and had successes at it. So I don't think it's yeah. necessarily that pushing him out the door either. He's just He's getting older. The guy is what, 74 years old, 75. Like, <laughs> he's, it's like we're not he's not leaving at 60 or going, huh, like what happened here? Was it the transfer thing that really did him in? I, I frankly do not think any of that is why I think he's just old. Right, like, and it's not that. <laughs> is, that, is, that the, is that the title on the athletic article? Coach K retires. Old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like DNP old. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Who like was I just, Tim, Tim Duncan? I think yeah. DNP old. Yeah. Stuff yeah. Like that. Um, like I kind of, I just, I find it hard to believe. Like K has been so outspoken about feeling like players should get name image and likeness rights like i don't think it's that i mean you could convince me that maybe he doesn't like the transfer stuff and maybe he doesn't like um the one and done like factory but he adjusted to it like i think if he really wanted to keep coaching i don't think that shit would stop him you know i I think he's 75 and he's made god i mean he has to have made into nine figures easy i don't think i don't think he's worried about the paycheck yeah like it's you know some sometimes you want to spend time with your family at 75 years old it's fine (laughs) you want to see your grandkids run around yeah you don't want to chase people i get it it's um it's it's yeah i I, I don't see it as being that i don't i don't i don't either and I, i am a little curious with sort of the the changing of the guard that's happening with roy williams retiring at 70 and coach k retiring and Tom Izzo, 66, Jim Laranaga, 71, Leonard Hamilton, 72, Jim Beheim 76. Like, you're going to have this transition to this younger style breed of young head coaches that I don't think that we necessarily thought would ever happen because in a lot of college basketball fans' minds, those guys are just going to be there forever. Yep. No, I think that's right. And um, where college basketball goes from here is genuinely interesting. Uh, and I want to start there before we go to where Duke goes from here. Uh where college basketball goes from here is in a very, I don't want to say precarious place, but it's in a real transitional period is maybe the way to put it. Uh, I, I don't think it's like at a crossroads. Like I think college basketball is always going to be relevant because the NCAA tournament is just the most exciting thing in sports in America at the end of the day. Like there's never going to be a world as long as that tournament exists where people don't take off work and decide I want to gamble on 12 games of basketball today. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. 
It's just yeah, the re- it's, a, it's a national holiday for me. I mean, I've done it for literally as long as I can remember. Uh, right. Post college, it's like Thursday, and it shifted this day with the days. But Thursday, Friday, like see you later. Uh, I will be watching games from twelve to twelve or twelve to one or whatever it is. And it, it's transitionary phase, but it, it, it's not. It's not going anywhere. I don't like it when people are, are so nervous about changes, whether it's guys going to the G League Ignite or one and done or transfers or what are you going to do? Like I, I saw right before I got on an article that John Rothstein wrote that said last season's NCAA tournament has highest rated Sweet 16 since 1993. And the two most watched non-football related sportscasts since 2019 were this past April's national title game between Baylor and Gonzaga and the Bulldogs Final Four Classic with UCLA two days earlier. This is people were saying that with the G League and, oh, UCLA doesn't have Deja Nix. It's fine. Isaiah Todd didn't go to Michigan. They're fine. Like, I don't think college basketball is going anywhere and it's going to take a nosedive because Coach K steps down or or players are getting paid to sign autographs at a car dealership. It's definitely changing. It's evolving. But like we've seen, programs adapt. Baylor went the the full get old stay old transfer route, won a national championship. Arkansas similar pattern is doing it. Kentucky is now fall suit and doing it. People are just going to react to to what the market allows it to. Yep, think that's absolutely right. Um, at the end of the day, you could maybe make a case that college basketball is more is less relevant now than it was in the nineteen eighties, and maybe it will continue to dwindle a little bit in terms of relevancy right but as long as it's on espn every night and espn has x number of hours it has to fill in terms of programming every single night uh i think that college basketball is just going to be fine uh it's still going to be extremely relevant now if espn decides that we're not going to televise these games and you know you have to go find them on your local stations that could be one thing right like that that could genuinely change things but until then i'm I don't think that regardless of who the coaches are, like the coach coaches are these titanic figures within college basketball. I just don't think that that's, you know, going to change the way people consume college basketball though. I, I, you know, maybe it changes the way people consume Duke. If Duke starts to be bad at basketball, but college basketball in general, if someone's bad, it's kind of a zero sum game where someone else steps up, you know, do we think Duke's going to be bad at basketball though? No, I don't honestly, that, university invests so much money within the program like look we don't know how john shire is going to be yet like i i think john shire has a strong chance at success i I don't know john well by any stretch i mean i've talked to him once or twice you know and we've met before but i I don't have a relationship with him at all um i've heard good things uh he seemed pretty good the couple times i've talked to him but we don't know how it's gonna go right and maybe it goes well maybe it goes poorly we'll see but even if he fails duke is still going to invest money in basketball uh maybe not like hand over fist like it does now but they'll still invest a lot of money in basketball they're still going to be good it's it's a strong program like when we did our coaches or our program rankings um in terms of like coaching jobs there's a reason duke was still in the top five it's because great callback yeah, it's because the amount of money invested in that program is just so drastic and the amount of fan support is just so extensive that it's hard, even if Shire doesn't work, they're still going to have money to go out and go get a great coach. 
and we had them fourth or somewhere in the top four. And it wasn't number one. It wasn't Kentucky because part of the thing we said was we don't know what this is going to look like life after Coach K. It's not a knock at John Shire at all, but just he's become synonymous with Duke basketball. It's the first thing you think is Mike Krzyzewski. John Shire has done an exceptional job recruiting. He was the main guy for Jason Tatum, for Zion Williamson, plenty of others. I want to see what it looks like this season from the sidelines if Coach K will let him run a few timeouts, run a few plays, let him take the reins a little bit to see if there is some transitionary period there for him as a head coach too because it's a lot different than we're in the first seat and versus standing up for the the whole game. But it's um, the other part of it is with these changes at, at North Carolina and with Duke, they both kept in the family. It's it makes me take pause and think if they didn't keep in the family, like what other names too for those pots even would make sense? Cause the only stuff we saw from Duke were other Duke names. Uh, I wonder if we ranked the school as high as we did as top four in our list, who would have jumped elsewise was opened up a little bit more. I would have been fascinated to see it. There was just no chance it was ever going to open up like that. It feels like, um, so no, no one's really considered it, but given the amount of resources that that program has, I cannot, and honestly, like, I think a big part of the reason is that, like, I wonder how many sitting head coaches that have very comfortable environments would have been jumping at the chance to, you know, go and coach and follow Coach K, right? I'm not positive of that, but I think that and look, like we keep saying, if you know, assume John Shire fails, there's no guarantee John Shire is going to fail. Um, quite the opposite. Like John Shire really might be great at this. We just don't know yet. But if John Shire does fail, there's a bit of separation from following Coach K, right? Yeah, it's there's a, just it's a good buffer zone, right? Little bit of extra time that I think maybe makes it a bit easier to find a great candidate if you go outside of the family enormous shoes to fill and we could probably argue the biggest college basketball shoes to fill ever like i I can't even with with everything that he's done with the national championships and the acc and usa basketball and his influence and impact there it's it's a a tough job to be the the next guy up to do it but they want to keep in the family they want someone who's been around who's played there, coach there, recruited there so I, i get that it makes sense because your other kind of candidates whether it's steve wojciechowski chris collins Tommy Amaker, Johnny Dawkins, Jeff Capel, even kind of an extension, Quinn Snyder. None of those guys really fit as much as he did. Yeah, I mean, I will say this. Like, they're going to give Shire, I can't imagine, he he gets less than three years, right? Uh, yeah, no way. No way. Yeah, yeah. no way. I mean, that, I mean, that was one of the things Coach K said in his press conference. He said, I hope his first three years are better than my first three years because his first three years at Duke weren't good. Totally. So it was, it, was, it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but – there's also a dose of reality there that, like, hey, it might not be a rocket ship the first season or two. Yeah, and having said that as well, three years would be four years away from now. In Utah, uh, that that timeline adds up nicely with a potential Quinn Snyder vacancy. <laughs> you, um, are, you are all on a conspiracy <laughs> theories today. Uh, just, just saying, uh, you know, because Quinn Snyder is by far the most accomplished, like, you know, duke connected coach right um like it's it's just not even really all that close like he has to be has to be the guy if they decide to go down that road again right um if shire doesn't work you have to go get the best guy if you're gonna keep it in the family you can't like um you you get that guy or the one who's now president of basketball the celtics 
Yeah, right. Uh, or like Billy Donovan or some shit like that, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, y- yeah. If this doesn't work, like you go out and you fire your bullets, and like Quinn Snyder's the one. If it, um, if he's willing to go down to college, um, if the timing works out. I will say the timing has potential to work out because that's right when Donovan Mitchell's deal <laughs> expires and right I when I, I know it just re up. They're playing well. They're winning series. We can't do this. But we don't we can't know, have the negative like, parade. Like Jazz fans won't care about that because it's four years down the road and it's you know like how many coaches last four years in the NBA? How many more coaches will last four more years in the NBA? Well under half of them, right? So if they win a title during this time, nobody's going to give a shit. But, you know, I think that I'm just I'm just, you know, reading the tea leaves and connecting just, dots. Just here, throwing stuff you know? out there. Yeah. Just just food for thought. Yeah. Uh, OK. Uh, do, do we have anything else we want to say about Kay and Duke and all of this stuff? No, that's my take. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Uh, the victory lap farewell tour. The, the Derek Jeter move was um, a nice tip of the cap. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how opposing fan bases at full capacity react to that on the road throughout the year. Oh boy, that could uh, that could get fun, especially given the way that uh, NBA fans have been uh, over the yeah, course. Of the been, last been great. While. Yeah, <laughs> been you're, been you're, you're back. The masks are off. People are going nuts. So who knows what goes yeah. on? Yeah, we we could get some legendary K explosions at fans though this year, uh, <laughs> such as the "Come on, Duke, let's, yeah, let's go, go Duke. Duke" press conference. Like that could be the we, we could get something beautiful this year from K. Well, we're we're ready for it. We're gonna have we're having a full season. We're go, we're doing the preseason stuff. We're, we're having a, a full slate of ACC games. So the the opportunities are, are really endless for us. Yeah, it's at, least, at last, least the content department. K's last chance to get a bit sanctimonious on the road, just a little bit, because he has a tendency to do that, and it's okay. That's that's the uh, that's the water that you're allowed to wade into whenever you're the greatest coach on planet Earth. <laughs> You win twelve hundred games, you get a little bit of leeway, right? But you know, uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll have to see if we we get some legendary moments this year from K. Um, let's go to the early entries. The NBA early entry list is two hundred and ninety six names long for college, and is three hundred and fifty three names long in total when you account for international players. I mean, what was your reaction when you? saw those numbers uh a lot of names it was uh, some of those guys i will give the benefit of the doubt too that like i don't think they expect to be drafted they're putting their name in there they're, they're they know they're going to go play overseas and then there's also probably a large number of guys that are being told the wrong thing and staying in the draft and it's going to be a, a disappointing draft night i think my favorite part was like the 20 or 30 guys are labeled as like unrecognizable it's like if you're if you put your name in the nba is like we don't even know who you are like probably a bad start okay so i did a little intro on the big board that went live today you guys should all go read subscribe go look at my big board 160 of these players of the 293 are seniors because if you remember seniors had to declare for this year's nba draft if you wanted to be eligible you had to declare so that knocks the number down to 136 136 is actually a very low number over recent history. In 2020, the number was 163. In 2019, it was 175. In 2018, which was the peak of, hey, let's just like declare and go for it. <laughs> let's do um, it, yeah. Underclassmen, 181 underclassmen declared for the NBA draft. So 
the number has dwindled quite a bit over the course of the years. And look, we can even up this number to 140, right? Because it includes the four. It does not include the four G League Ignite guys, right? But even so, that's a low number comparatively. And if you look at the percentage of these players that tend to stay in the draft, uh, it's somewhere between 45 and 50% typically. Uh, last year, it was 456 the year before that, it was 49%. And the year before that, it was 50.2% uh, stayed in the NBA draft. So if we do that ballpark, that means it's only like 62 to 68 early entrance in this year's NBA draft, which says to me that these kids are kind of getting smarter about things and kind of not even smarter, but they're they're getting more educated about just what it means to declare for the draft and what will happen once you do declare for the draft. Well, what was the first year you could do like the, the declaration, do the process and go back, then like do it again? Yeah, I maybe, believe maybe it was. Maybe that plays into a little bit too. 2017, I think. So maybe, that, maybe that's why your 2018 number was high. Then people saw that, hey, yeah, if I put my name in there, maybe it's not the, the best idea if I don't get the feedback I need. Uh, there weren't like a, a ton of guys that I've started looking ahead to. 2022 in my free time for the draft there's not like a ton of guys though they're going back to school that i thought wow that guy would have probably been a top 20 pick if he went this year he's he's yeah. gonna go back to school and maybe he bumps to 10 like who i, I can't even like really think of anybody i mean Jaden ivy maybe a little bit yeah. as a, a first roundish guy and he'll probably start in the lottery for a lot of places but the guys that declare that i think are first round picks uh, it's fine there weren't any real surprises for me of, of guys that i thought should have went and didn't yeah, the standouts for me in terms of who declared and or chose not to declare, I guess, was Benedict Matherin from yes, Arizona, six yeah. foot seven wing, shoots the ball, Canadian. Uh, I think he is going to start next year as a top twenty guy. Jaden Ivy at Purdue. Uh, it nobody really ranked Jaden this year because it seemed very clear that he was going to return. I, I mean, he's going to start next year in the lottery for me. Uh, that, that kid is a stud. I really like Jaime Jaquez. He would have been a top 50 guy for me. Uh, I would have had him ahead of Johnny Juzang, for instance, Ooh. who I have right around 50-52. Um, beyond that, though? Right, and even Jaime's 50. Like, we're not saying he was he was in maybe, the 30s. Like, he's he's 50. Like, maybe Tavion Kinsey from Marshall? Like, yeah, maybe? like... I like F.A. Abogidi from Washington State, but like he didn't close the season all that well. Like I like Jabari Walker from Colorado, but he's not he's just like not ready yet. No. Um, like Drew Timmy declared. So or I chose not to declare, but Timmy's just general late, late second, probably ish. and NBA translation is a little bit tricky. So, yeah, I think you're 100 percent right. Like, I think that it's difficult to find the guys that like should have or should have declared that didn't now like we might still get some guys who go back right like marcus bagley still has not made an official decision uh kessler edwards still has not made an official decision trey murphy still has not made an official decision um you know you can go down the board and there are more guys the lower you get on my board right um joe wee's camp and julian champagne and max a smith uh like, like those guys still haven't decided yet officially so yeah i think that it's true it's again it feels like kids are getting better advice now than they have in the past and it feels like these kids are are going in with more of an understanding 
of what they want from the process. Do they are they willing to enter the NBA to be a two way player? Are they willing to enter the NBA only if they get a guaranteed deal? It, it seems like t- it seems like players are more educated about those subjects now and are listening less. Not listening less, but are are being told by the people around them what the advantages and disadvantages of each situation are, I think. And part of that maybe is the the NBA feedback and the way the process has changed, where if you sign with an NBA-certified agent, you're allowed to collect feedback and then go back to school. If the agent's not certified, you can't technically sign with them, do that dance. I also like the idea of somewhat the domestic draft and stash, I'd say. If you're a guy like JT Thor who, for whatever reason, doesn't want to go back to Auburn, you think maybe it's a logjam in the front court, you want to work in development, it's not the worst thing if, if you want to be drafted kind of in like that 40s range and spend time in the G League, which is very good now, and, and send, develop your Send craft that kid there. over here on a Next Stars uh, You and your, Australia, you and your Australian, Australian send-overs. Yeah. Well, I mean, he could fit, but the, but then there's also other guys who are, are sneaking up, a guy like Trey Murphy, who you mentioned, Josh Primo at Alabama. It just it's it's kind of like a case by case basis, and it is seems like it's trending in a better direction of using the feedback that may be brutally honest, and then applying that to whatever decision you make. Yep. No, I think that that's mostly right. And let's just kind of dive into some guys that are interesting. I think at this point, right? Guys that yeah. decided to declare. Uh, Miles McBride, for instance, is really interesting to me. I have him at thirty two on my board. I'm a pretty big fan of McBride. I think that. He's a real shot creator. He's still developing as a passer, but I think he's uh, a little bit more projectable there than someone like a Trey Mann, for instance, Uh, and just an elite-level defender. And I'm fascinated to see what his decision is going to be coming up here. For Deuce, uh, my hesitation is, is he a guy that the numbers are better than the actual tape? At like six yeah. foot two, yeah. are we sure he's a point guard? Is he more of a, a small combo? And that Gonzaga game and the battle of high school quarterbacks with Jalen Suggs. I just can't shake him struggling with, with Suggs athleticism and he gets hurt or whatever, but he was four for 14 and Suggs kind of like twitchability gave him fits and Deuce can shoot it, but it takes him a little while to, to get it off and to get going. So I don't think I'm, I'm quite as high, but then the defense is a little bit of a separator too, that maybe that makes up for the potential lack of a, a quick twitch offense on the other end. Yeah, no, I think that that's basically the assessment that NBA teams are going to have to make. Like, is getting a backup point guard who is steady and can get his own bucket and can change the game defensively, is that valuable at 32? I, I think Denver right now would tell you yes, uh, given what Monte Morris has been able to do in the playoffs this year. Um, there are fewer good backup point guards than what you would think uh, in the NBA. Like, fewer guys that you can legitimately put out on the court in tough circumstances. I, I kind of think he has a shot to be one of those guys. So he is, you said, 32 for you? Yeah. And then where do you have Josh Primo from Alabama? I have Primo 36. Okay. I don't think anyone will deny that Primo has more upside than Miles McBride, right? Yes, and I I remember being ridiculed by you on the first mock draft this season when I, I put him in the 20s, and now here we are talking about him as kind of like the the hype train for him has left the season, and he's trending as his late first, early second round guy, and I think part of it is he's still a baby. He's not turning 19 until December. Has really good size for a shooter at six foot six. Shot 38 percent for the season. 
I would just rather take a guy like that than a backup point guard who we can find as the, the playoffs and the NBA has shown, and I don't have to take that chance at 32. So, yeah, I think that a lot of NBA teams would agree with you on that. And frankly, like I'm not set on having McBride ahead of Josh Primo. The more I watched Primo the more excited I was by the flashes, he's still nowhere near consistent enough. Like he's an 18 year old playing college basketball. Like he was messy defensively at a lot of times this season. And even offensively, I thought he struggled to get his own shot regularly this year, but there would be these times in the middle of like open play where like he'd set a guy up with a left to right crossover and then whip back a right to left crossover and just blow the guy like just leave him in the dust right and it's those little technical things that make me go oh no he might actually have it you know what i mean like he he might actually at some point be a real like high level secondary ball handler then you throw in the shooting like i, I think we're confident about the shooting right like that's going to translate it, it is, and he's much more than a catch-and-shoot prospect. And to start the year, that's kind of what he was labeled as because when you have Herb Jones, you have Javon Quinterly doing a lot of the ball-handling stuff, he did get sped up. He had some turnovers in early games that he was kind of unplayable for stretches, but then he, he settled in, he matured on the fly, and I'm drawn to a play against UCLA, and it was a missed dunk. But he's on the break, and he cranks up and tries to dunk on Cody Riley's head, and I didn't know he had that in him. And, and it, the more flashes you watch, the more tape you watch, he's a pretty fluid athlete that can cleanly switch hands on the move to make plays. And if that keeps trending in that direction at six foot six and 18 years old, I'm, I'm investing in that in a late first-round pick. Yeah, I don't think that that's wrong necessarily at all. Um in terms of other guys that we want to talk about here, who who is who are the guys that are testing that you want to talk about? I, I guess we can go there next. Mm, I don't know if they've officially officially taught, but I I do want to get a spin. I do want to get your perspective on Oche Agbaji from Kansas. So I know you haven't been the biggest fan overall yeah. through through the the season and his career there. But at six foot five, he's strong, has a switchable game on defense, quietly averaged fourteen points per game. I think so. I think so. I mean that the criticism he gets, and he shot thirty eight percent from three, is that he can do the disappearing act at times, but stepped up in big moments, had nine straight games, the big ten play I'm sorry, big twelve play with double digit points. Uh, at 26 in the Big 12 quarterfinals. I just see as kind of he can be a two-way type of rotational player, and the ball handling is what kind of is drawn him back from me at times. But I, I do think he's a worker. He was going to redshirt that first season at Kansas, and they said, nope, you're not. We have injuries. Plugged right in and averaged nine points per game. Anytime I watch him, I just feel like he doesn't have great feel for the game and like doesn't process the game at an incredibly high level yet uh misses reads pretty regularly on offense uh good passing reads and they kind of lead to like bad drives that don't go anywhere or bad um shot attempts that just like don't have a high level shot of going in um if he's just like standstill shooting which he did a lot this year. Like, he was actually a super high-volume three-point shooter this year. Yeah, I think that that's pretty real and pretty interesting. But you can't 
just only bring that to the table. And I kind of think that right now, because of the lack of handle, because of the lack of ability to like truly attack closeouts in a dangerous way, um, like he, he's better as a cutter going toward the basket than he is attacking a closeout. And then you throw in the fact that, like, I think he gets lost a little bit more than you want on defense. I've just never really been a fan. I mean, look, like, just looking at my big board right now, like, I can tell you, like, I have him below Scotty Lewis. I probably shouldn't have him below Scotty mm. Lewis. Right? Yeah. Like, just being real about so. it at the end of the day. Mm. Um, but I, I don't know that I can get him above 90. You know, I don't know that I can get him above 85. Wow. I, I just see, and, and not that he had a... Uh, outstanding rookie year but isn't there some comparison shades of josh green and what he does from an athletic standpoint can run and jump the the ball handling's not there can shoot a little bit like that type of role and a year ago josh went what like 30 20s like he was, he he was 20s, higher than 90 yeah, yeah he, he, was, he was higher than 90 put it that way yeah and i was more skeptical on josh than a lot of people were i think i had josh at like 25 or so um and i think he went like 21 22 um with josh the josh is a much better prospect for a couple of reasons josh could handle the ball out on the break and make high level passing reads at a level to which we haven't really seen agbaji do josh was a much better on ball defender i thought um, just much more aggressive. And yeah, I think I trust Oshai's jumper more for sure. But then I think that Josh has better touch in terms of just like being able to finish around the basket. I think that Josh made free throws like a 79% clip. I don't think Oshai has ever uh, cracked 70 as a free He's throw. He's below 70, player. yeah. Yeah, so like I understand the comparison. I don't think it's a like poor comparison. I think we should definitely compare guys like that more regularly. Like I've been doing it a lot with like why do I have Zaire Williams 15 spots higher than BJ Boston? Right? Why do yeah. I have um why do I have Herb Jones uh you know 20 spots higher than Justin Champagny? right um you know defense first you know wing forward types right um and i think that the difference those are kind of the differences between josh green and oshai though like i think green is just like a much more rounded out prospect at a younger age than what oshai is the the age is a big one too that that is significant yeah um and again like i I like josh enough but i I wasn't even like an enormous josh green fan either and and look like here's the other thing about this draft class like i think another reason why a lot of guys are kind of testing the waters right now is that for instance i got a tweet earlier today from someone like how are you so low on (laughs) trey man fill in the blank you can say anybody trey man was the answer okay you you honestly could have said anyone because anytime you post a big board I, I do click, read, review, subscribe, but uh, I click it for the. I'm here for the comments. It's always oh, like, yeah. who, who who is going to get on Sam today? So for Trey Man, that was uh, an interesting one. So why so low on Trey Man? I have Trey Man at 35. Um, one of the better shot makers in the class with good size for a combo guard. Second round, is this more sources driven um, or your own thoughts on him? So I, I would say I'm a little bit lower than consensus NBA team opinion on Trey Mann. I've heard more 20 to 30 range on Trey, so like I'm not wildly lower. But with Trey, like he's a pure perimeter player who doesn't really pressure the defense. He has like a little floater game, but doesn't really pressure the rim at all. Doesn't really attack um, to go forward, always to get the step back. Doesn't really read passing lanes 
for his teammates all that well. Um, I think he had like a one to think like one one point two to one, one point three to one assist to turnover. Um, his handle is a bit looser than what people think it is because uh, he's so creative off the bounce and he's so shifty and has such good deceleration that he makes guys look dumb from time to time. Like he makes guys look really dumb regularly on the court. But then you look at him drive toward the basket. If he gets into the paint, he gets ripped all the time because the handle's a little bit looser. So I look at Trey Mann and then you look at the defensive deficiencies as well. I mean, he's just a really poor defender. Like he has a lackadaisical approach, like gets driven in a straight line regularly, like not someone who really contests shots all that well like there's just a lot there that's a problem defensively for trey man um in addition to the concerns about how specific skills within his offensive game will translate to where i'm just a little bit lower on him right um but what you'll find with this draft and why i specifically bring up trey man is that from let's say like seven or eight down to 35 like nba teams aren't really consensus on guys like there's, there's not really like there are guys that have James Booknight at eight. There are people that have James Booknight at like twenty or twenty five, right? Um, there's a, there's a, there's a there's a lot of guys in that boat. I mean, there's Booknight, yeah. Corey Kispert's high and low. Moses Moody's high and low. Uh, Shangun, who we talked about, can be higher or lower depending on the Kai team. Jones, Karuba, Kai Jones. We're kind of listing your whole big board from from eight to twenty five, but there's. This totally. extreme level of variance that, that has to be accounted for as well. This draft is very flat in terms of talent from like single digits, like late single digits, like seven, eight, nine onward to like 35. And look, I have preferences. That's why I release a big board, right? Like I would not have um, Moses Moody outside of my top 20, right? But people do at the end of the day. Um, it's a very difficult draft class to evaluate. Now, the good news for NBA teams is that they only have to get one right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you have to get that one right. That, that's part of it. Like, yeah, you, you can be the guy that that takes the risk at Trey Mann at fourteen, or like I wouldn't be. I was blown away when Jalen Smith went whatever tenth or eleventh last yeah. year. I was like blown away. I was like, excuse me. Uh, with Tyrus Halliburton on board. Uh, but if, if, like, I'm not going to be blown away this year if you tell me Cam Thomas goes 15th. Be like, yeah. okay, yeah, I, I, I get someone values him. If somehow Alperin Changun goes 7th, I'll be like, all right, well, we, we kind of saw that coming. Like, there's not much that can happen in the first round that I think would, would blow me away this year. Yeah, like, I like Josh Giddy quite a bit. I will be surprised if Josh Giddy falls below 15. I also won't be surprised if Josh Giddy goes 7, you know? like I, Exactly. That won't stun me at all. Uh, if Chris Duarte falls to like 27, I have Chris Duarte at 14. Oh, let it happen. Yeah. And like, frankly, that might be lower than my actual opinion on him. Like, I would take him over Kai Jones. I would take him over. And well, it would depend on team circumstance with Kai Jones. I would take him over Franz Wagner. Like, I, I, I'm probably going to end up with Chris Duarte, like, pretty high on my board compared to where other people have him. Right? I, um, yeah he really might fall to like 25 and I'm going to be sitting there like what's going on. Jalen Johnson could go anywhere from uh, nine to one. Yeah. 30. Like mm-hmm. NBA teams really have to do their homework on the circumstances of why he left IMG, why he left Duke. 
every team's going to come to a different conclusion on how they feel about those situations. Um, you know, every team is going to come to a different conclusion on Corey Kispert has a very real flaw in terms of lateral, lateral quickness. Do we think that we can work with it? Do we think that he can ever defend at a high enough level to take advantage of the fact that he's a 45% three point shooter? Every team's going to come to a different conclusion on can Keon Johnson ever shoot, right? Yeah. Can Keon Johnson ever shoot? Can, can Scotty Barnes score in the half court? There's, there's all these big question marks. It's what you value. And I'm not like an anti-analytics guy. I don't want to say that at all because I also know how analytically driven the athletic is, who is, who is here with us today. Uh, but like if your analytics department is saying, well, Duarte's age really stunts what his ceiling's going to be. And we'd rather take a guy like Moses Moody, who's four years younger. I get that. I'm almost like afraid to put out a board with, with some of these guys because like you, I think my opinion may be a little bit higher because what I value in, in shooting and in defense and size. And, and that's why I like Primo over Miles McBride. That's why I probably value Chris Duarte higher. You know, I'm watching the, the playoffs and it was, uh, Duncan Robinson got like a back screen into the post and you know, he was ISO to, I think, on like Chris Middleton and he scored. They, they don't sub him out because the guy shoots 42% from three and doesn't stop moving and stretches the defense. Like there's there's value in that in, in that type of player, so I don't think there's a situation where shooters like a, a Corey Kispert, though he may be a little bit slow laterally, falls out of I'd say the top twenty. I think that's right. Um, okay, is there anything else you want to talk about early entry slash draft wise? Draft wise, can we do can we just do a quick hitter one name. I want your take. Yeah, please. Let's do it. Ray, Raekwon Gray from Florida State. Oh, God. Um, it was funny. I was talking to one of our mutual coaching friends, and he brought up Raekwon. And I told him earlier this week I would do a deep dive on Raekwon, and I still haven't done it. Um, I watched a little bit. I'm fascinated in a lot of ways. The passing is really interesting. The defensive upside is really interesting. He's going to have to shoot it, I think, on some level, though. Yeah, at, at six foot eight. 260 i mean he's he's built like a tank but he can set high ball screens or he can come off high ball screens and he has really nimble feet he gets to a spot on the floor he has a really soft floater he uses shoulders to lean into bumps to create space it's it's kind of an amazing watch and i'm just curious how this looks and with more space and less interior help maybe on the next level and it wasn't eye-popping stats with around 12 points and six rebounds but We've seen this with Florida State players before because they play nine guys that it's not always going to pop off the screen. Totally. Um, I have him in the 60s right now. You could tell me I end up with him at like 40. You could tell me I end up with them way lower. I, I really just need to like dive into like 10 Florida State games, and I just haven't done that yet, if we're just going to be honest about it. So um, they're on my list at this point going forward or he's on my list to like really run through just because again like our mutual friend was like really high on him and i think this person's really smart so i i didn't want to um really dive like heavy into it until i till i like went see, through you and, see like, more really put, put, put put your eyes on it yeah yeah for sure okay do you want to do mayor oh let's do it let's do it and, and i want to start with this turn off the first of all turn it off if you haven't watched mayor we're not doing this again because people are a little upset no, no. It, honestly, I got way more positive stuff on this than negative. Like one person tweeted us and was like, 
oh, I, I follow you for basketball, not TV. Like, how? Can you oh, no, I don't, I don't. I don't care about them. I mean, th- this is just like right. a, an hour and a half phone conversation that we record that has like a few bullet points, and one of those movies and TV. Right. Uh, more, more so, I have friends being like. Dude, what the hell? Did, like, Sam, like, read the script? <laughs> like, he spoiled this thing. I got it for, like, multiple people. Like, hey, man, really cool you were on Sam's show and, like, knew what happened and just kind of, like, rolled with it. I'm like, dude, I like, I didn't know what happened. And then I was on the road, so I didn't watch it. So I'm, like, waiting. I'm, like, rushing home. I land at the airport. I throw my bag down. I, I go to watch Mayor and catch up on the finale. Meanwhile, during the day, you're texting me, and I'm, I'm trying <laughs> not to read the text, but it's like a paragraph, so I'm scrolling. So it's like, after Mayor's car crash, I'm like, you I'm just like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And then like I peek. Oh, no, like, let's. Oh, no, no, no. Crash. No, 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 no. I'm not that big of a monster. Like, oh, I, I was. I thought so. I, I, we don't know each other well <laughs> enough. I was like, I, I can't believe he's doing this to me. I've invested all this time, all this like conversation with people about small towns, the problems, the secrets you have. And like, this guy's going to ruin it to me while I'm chasing a flight after 1145 championship game tip in Indianapolis. I'm like, this, this is, how is this what ends. I was tweeting. This is the end of the road. This is what I was texting you. Best part of the finale, when Mare got shipwrecked after an enormous car hit an iceberg in the I, middle of the Atlantic, and then Leonardo DiCaprio shows up, and he, uh, she let Leo die in order to get back to her family. Craziest finale in TV history. But I just like, saw Mare and car crash, so I'm like, oh, man, she's going to get in the car, it's going to okay. die, this show's so dark, like, what are we doing? I'm a little bit of a monster. I will, I will admit okay. that. Uh, Minor monster. Another one was, it was great just because it actually confirmed that, yes, your theory that Mary's ex-husband <laughs> is actually Roy from The Office. Jenna Fisher showed up. She left Jim around 2018 and came to break up Frank and Faye's relationship. Three quarters of the episode was dedicated to a flashback on what happened to Roy after he left The Office. Like that, that That's when I was fine. That's when I leaned in. But when you said, hey, the finale was this, I'm like, I can't do it. So I, I was trying to like, I was going to text you like eight words <laughs> in a row so it, like erase from the screen you're gonna be like, but, uh, but I, I, didn't, monster. I didn't yeah <laughs> i'm a little bit of a monster a little bit of one Not all right so what so what what was your take i mean i thought the the ep- Let's two episodes before, the time, unbelievable. spoiler alert like please turn this off if you haven't turned it off yeah, yet, I've turned it about off. It for uh, a while. people have turned off it anyway yeah yeah just us. okay um i just need to make sure of that penny go ahead no i wanted your take on the the actual finale the, the series did were in alignment that it was unbelievable give kate winslet all the awards just your your take on the on the one-off for the finale uh i I thought it was staggering i thought it was everything i could have possibly wanted from the finale like i said from last week and have been saying basically since the first episode to other people i've been talking to about it like i didn't i cared about the mystery but i cared way more about the world that they built and about the characters involved in their in the way that they kind of dealt with the situations that happened to them right like i cared way more about mare getting closure regarding her son's suicide than i did like whether or not john was the father of aaron's baby right uh i think on some level you have to do the typical mystery stuff within a show like this because you have to have something driving the plot forward you have to have something that these people are doing otherwise it's just a show about like a opioid ridden town in eastern pennsylvania that is struggling And I thought that the way that they dealt with 
Mare and her mother, that scene like at the restaurant was amazing. The way that they dealt with Mare coming to some sort of grips with the way that her son died, uh, the way that Mare and Julianne Nicholson, Laurie, uh, the way that their characters came to an understanding. I thought it was very hopeful at the end of the day. Like, I didn't think it was a. Um, like, I didn't think it was a downer at all. Like, I talked to um, uh, Rob Doster about it afterward, and Rob was like, man, this show was just very dark, and the ending seemed very dark, and I was like, I don't agree with that at all. I, th- I thought it was very hopeful and positive regarding the whole thing. I think I'm on team Rob with this one. I, the, the show ended. It, it was just regardless of the closure or semi-closure they had it was so heavy like i turned off the tv and just like stared at the ceiling for a while it's like that was that was a lot to take in e- even the scene with kevin's girlfriend the the mother of the kid that uh mayor is kind of taken in when they had that like real talk about addiction yeah. and she says she's struggling I'm like oh man this is like a lot and she's facing it and these are these are real issues that are, are ravaging america because of drugs and drug addiction uh, my one critique, if, if I can critique, and I know I can be Mr. Negative, is we slowly put it all together, and you apparently put it all together three episodes before everyone else, but <laughs> we put it all together what this was going to be, and it was going to be Ryan. It's a slow burn. It's like, oh, man, like here are the pieces. He's going to be the one, and he most of the one. And you're, you're putting it all together, and it's like this is kind of a little bit fast-forwarded, like a little bit Law & Order SVU-y. A little bit, Like yeah. at, the, at the end, and yeah, on Law & Order SVU, they always have like the scene where they're like admitting it and breaking it down or hugging their parents. Uh, aside from that, and I still appreciate the development to get there, uh, it, it was incredible. And I'll, I'll certainly miss it on Sunday nights and search for my new fix for a TV show, I guess. Oh, uh, the, the scene where he runs home and just like goes to his mother like that's just like heartbreaking oh it's Um, it's it's brutal brutal yeah and 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 with with a kid now it's like i just this is gonna sound sappy you you just look at her through a different lens you just like can't even imagine that this kid was trying to really in theory protect his family by doing like the unthinkable and that he's gonna like go away for god knows how long because of of what he did which he thought was right it's uh it's heartbreaking it was no it really is um yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the scene with Kevin's like partner where she like just can't even show up to the um to like the mediation meeting regarding uh what's the kid's name? Drew, is that right? Yes, Drew. Yep. Um like that 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 scene with and like Mare plays it and like Kate Winslet plays it so straight as opposed cuz like she just doesn't really like this woman because of what the role that this woman played in you know causing kevin's issues and like continuing to exacerbate kevin's like drug issues there there's just so many different ways that like these characters were so lived in before the show even began like they have all this built-up history that like we won't get to see but that is yeah. very clearly there beneath the surface. It's a it's a staggering show. Um, it no, it, it, it's it's perfectly put. It, it's like we kind of they didn't present the story to us. We kind of like walked into the world and the story, and then yeah. we as an audience like peeled back some layers each episode to, to piece it together. But I, I also feel like now we took a step back, and that world somewhere is still going on, and they're still dealing with issues and mayors 
problem with commitment and still going to therapy and, and putting closure to the death of her son and her daughter off to college and Roy from the warehouse is living behind her house with a new life. There's just a lot of levels to it. In we've got to we've got to do guy pierce watch here <laughs> what happened what what happened what so happened here? someone what, tweeted what's his, what's his what's his title just red herring like I, I kept on waiting even when he drove away the last scene i'm like oh he's gonna have a gun in his trunk or like something's gonna happen he just left so apparently they filmed scenes of this show with ben miles who is in the crown and ben miles is like not as big of a deal right as guy pierce guy who was the lead in memento and guy who was who has been like the lead in many movies throughout the course of his career right like ben miles is like peter townsend in the crown right um and i'm sure that like people who like the crown like i do will you know recognize him but he like if he's the guy we're not sitting here going oh my no, god i no, wonder what if happened right. guy pierce did this like what's what's going on like there has to be another shooter drop so apparently they had to go back and like because ben miles had like another commitment i guess someone tweeted about this like I, I forget i'm sorry that i don't know who it was and they'd go back and like reshoot some of these scenes i guess with guy pierce and that's why it often felt like you know guy, guy pierce was like never connected to uh other characters in the show you know and, and and he was good too i i felt he had some poignant moments there but he did feel that felt more of like a movie when the rest of it was like a small town that that felt very scripty where an author comes in he's needs some redemption on his own and he meets the police officer at a bar and she it, that was the only thing that didn't feel like authentic to a point but his acting raised it to another level. I just thought we were going to get so, – my closure was like, how does Guy Pierce fit? And I never got yeah. that. Maybe that's part of my issue with thinking the show is so heavy. Well, and I think that – well, I don't think it's your issue. I, I think part of it is our, like, audience history with Guy Pierce, right? Like, Guy Pierce in the last, like, what, three years probably – has been the bad guy in Bloodshot, the bad guy in Without Remorse. Um, he, he really seems to be, uh, I guess, you know, sorry, spoiler alert for those movies too, now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> but please, like, don't watch Bloodshot. It was bad. Um, but, like, he's, like, you know, it's very obvious he's going to be the bad guy in Without Remorse. Um, but, like, we, we've seen these movies, and, like, he's the, um, like, evil, like, head guy at the top of the organization in prometheus right like we have a history now and he's the bad roles the bad guy in iron man 3 like we we have this history of him being a bad guy now to where we just like feel that when he's on the screen i think that aha moment like now he's the bad guy now he's involved he gave ryan the gun he put it out there he was writing a novel late night left the go whatever it is it didn't it didn't connect but if that's what we're we're nitpicking i think we're in a, a pretty good place right totally and I, i've like kind of been going through um what what movies does he have coming out was he randomly just in eastern pennsylvania <laughs> are you around this weekend what are, what are you doing did someone send him a you up text at like 2 a.m on a friday it's like yeah man let's do it yeah like was he just like randomly hanging out you know filming something else in eastern pa and was just like there and they were like hey guy do you want to come through and like film is this you know you, you were in mildred pierce with kate winslet you'd probably be pretty good in this role I haven't been able to find it. I will say that. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, but I, I have I haven't either, and I read uh, I believe it was a New York Times article yesterday about Kate Winslet and the project and how she felt so tied to this character and this town and how she wanted all the flaws and scars and wrinkles to show because she didn't want to seem like it was this American drama where a person looks out of place. She wanted to feel like she was actually a part of this community and a part of the story. Yeah, and I I always felt that I never I never thought it was. Kate Winslet. I always just thought it was Mayor. Everyone calls her Mayor. I think it was like the totally. the last episode when the mom calls her Marianne. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I figured her name was Marianne, but they always called her Mayor. Maybe it was. And that's just yep. you're, when you're in a small town, you're your Lady Hawk or your Mayor, and that's who she is. Matt, do you have anything else you want to talk about here? I don't think so. I think we've been run off by uh, the Mayor talk the last ten minutes or so, which was good. It was this was actually um, clear ahead, empty out our, our our thoughts on a on a great show, and I hope we can find another one soon that we can relate on not some weirdo horror movie on a streaming service i don't have that you watched on like a a wednesday after three nba games i mean i I will say last night we watched a movie called sun see see this 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 is knowing your personnel right (laughs) yeah i knew you had something in the bag of tricks yeah like (laughs) um was a wild movie um (laughs) basically like cult uh has a situation where it ends up possessing small child and mother is trying to figure out how to stop it um and we're back yeah one of those deals uh and then i also watched a movie called the Jin, where uh look my wife loves horror movies that's good that's good we've we've dug deep into the horror realm here um where it's like this little kid who is mute and he wishes he like apparently the djinn can grant a wish if you survive the night um kind of thing yeah and he has to like survive the night in this apartment while this like djinn chases him um pretty good Uh, that one was better than sun i will say that i was impressed with sun and djinn yeah you you have more patience than me i think is part of it i'll I'll watch some shows after 10 minutes i'm like nope not doing it done even movies just like you, you have these tiny pockets like i can watch film I can watch a, a crappy movie, or I can watch whatever the Bruins beat the Islanders. Like I, the watching Jin and Son are just down my depth chart, I guess. I, I will say this: I watched um, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, which is the Kristen Wiig, uh, Annie Momolo, Jamie Dornan movie. They came out in February. It is. What, where is that available right now? That's on Amazon Prime. Check it out. Yeah. Okay, I got it. I'll check it you out. You have to rent it. Yeah. Um, Oh, the rental. I don't understand the rental on Amazon Prime, but that's a, another discussion. My wife and I spend a lot of money renting movies. Um, this movie, it's one of the funniest, most fun times I've had watching a movie in a long time. It is so ridiculous. It is so dumb. It is so silly. And it is hilarious. It is absolutely hilarious. Like, it's, well, again, like one of those movies where you can just clearly see that Barb and Star, these two characters, are have this very lived history of being best friends because i think that like kristen wig and annie momolo have known each other for a very long time and just like the little jokes that they have like you can tell that they just went on to went on to the screen and we're like oh yeah we're just gonna make jokes we're not actually gonna write a script we're just gonna like talk and these little in jokes between us are gonna show up in the movie i love that it's press play it's like the uh the sonic commercial it's the same thing they're just sitting like they're driving and start making jokes yeah um i I would wholly recommend barb and star go to vista del mar for anyone i thought it was absolutely fucking hilarious um okay 
I have a couple of stories coming out on specific NBA teams early next week. I'm just working through the draft guide at this stage and through like 40 guys. And that's like deep dives, let alone uh, the other 60 I have to write that are not all that. Uh, I have to write 20 more deep dives, but that's fine. Um, I've got a podcast on the NBA playoffs coming out later this weekend with a good friend of mine. Um, and then beyond that, I don't know what else. Penny, do you have anything else you want to plug? No, no plugs here. I'll uh, be in Vegas this weekend, back in the road, back in the gym, scouting kids at Pangos All-American Camp. That's my next stop. Oh, what a what a beauty. Pangos All-American Camp. Wait, you're in Vegas for that and not LA? They moved it. Yeah, California has some different restrictions, so we're in Vegas, baby. Oh, what a shame. What a, yeah. what a shame for Dinos. Um, all right, this has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We'll be back later this weekend with more, but until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you.